0: So, Lord God, I confess to you and before everyone here that most of the time I feel pretty baffled. I try to make things work. I try to control situations and I feel baffled. Maybe we all feel baffled and confused and yet, Lord God, we're here this morning to say hallelujah. And in case anybody's forgotten what that means, it means praise Yahweh. We praise you, Lord God, and we ask you to help us preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by reading you one of my very favorite psalms. A psalm is a poem set to music. In other words, it's a song. The psalms... uh, this psalm, there's a book of psalms, but there's psalms throughout the scripture. This psalm is addressed to the Most High God. It appears to have been written in Babylon, uh, where the Jews were kept as slaves to the notorious Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Th- this is how it goes. How great are His signs, the Most High God? How mighty his wonders? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love that psalm, for it reminds me that God is in absolute control. And I can see why the Jews would sing it in Babylon. This is Psalm 137, verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. Now, lyres are stringed instruments, not for telling lies, but for telling the truth through through music. Psalm 137 goes on to ask, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And yet the irony is that they do sing in a foreign land. In fact, they're singing this very question in that uh, foreign land. And actually, they sing—they seem to sing better in Babylon than they do in Jerusalem. The Book of Psalms, which you know is like the Jewish songbook, appears to have been finished while the Jews were slaves in Babylon, and then compiled during the time of Ezra. Slaves sing better than kings. King David wrote hundreds of, of psalms. Well, we know, at least, we know at least he wrote something like that. It appears he wrote hundreds and hundreds of, of psalms, but it appears that he wrote most of them when he was a shepherd, or hiding in the cave of Adullam, or repenting of his sins, or running from Absalom, when he no longer felt like a king, but a slave. Slaves sing better than kings, and that makes some sense, doesn't it? Songs change the meaning of things, and they transport you to another place. We all know this. A song like Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones will suddenly come on the radio while I'm driving, and suddenly, I will be transported to railbender at Mary Jane Mountain, 1979, skiing the bumps. And, and adrenaline will start flowing through my veins. My pulse will increase. And inevitably, I'll smile. <laughs> Even on the worst of days, I'll smile. Sometimes I'll hear a song sung by Charday and suddenly I'm lying on a beach in 1990 next to my wife in an amazing bikini. I love those Chardet songs. Songs change the meaning of things and they transport you to another place and another time and they can animate you here and now. In other words, they can make you dance. Beauty itself is a dance. Some people talk as if beauty, poetry, Songs and music are illogical and so sometimes it, it surprises folks to discover that there's actually nothing more logical than a song. Music is a celebration of incredibly complex mathematical equations in the physics of harmonic oscillations in the atmosphere all around you. It's profoundly logical, it's just a logic that we cannot normally comprehend but all of us can intuit. It's a logic we can't comprehend, but a logic that comprehends us and causes us to smile and sing and maybe even dance. Every mathematician and physicist knows this, but not many of them are very good at writing songs. A supercomputer has never written a song that made it to the top 40 or that anyone called beautiful. But uneducated, persecuted, marginalized, underprivileged people who can't even read music have written millions and millions of beautiful songs. Recently, I realized that most of my favorite music wasn't written by privileged, wealthy white people in the 60s and 70s. They often stole it, re-recorded it, and called it rock and roll, but most of it was written by underprivileged black people in the 1950s who called it the blues. I, I mean, I recently discovered the blues channel on my TV. And I, I love the blues. They make me happy. Isn't that weird? But they make me happy. Great music isn't written by kings. Unless, of course, they've been reduced to servants and slaves like David. I think that's because there is an epistemology of technology and there is an epistemology of worship. Epistemology is the study of how we come to know things. We can know things less wonderful than ourselves through science and technology, the way a chemist might come to know that sodium and chlorine make salt. However, we can only come to know things greater than ourselves through worship. Not through seizing control, but through surrendering control. Uh, The way a husband might come to know his bride. Or a creature might come to know his or her creator. There's this scene in the deeply profound movie, Napoleon Dynamite, that in my mind perfectly illustrates this epistemological tension in which you and I live. Kip is a nerd who lives in his mother's basement where he is king. In control of all that he surveys, which happens to be a bunch of technology and, and video games, yet Kip meets a woman online named La Fonda. And now Kip is struggling with surrendering his kingdom but he's starting to sing. We met in a chat room. Now our love can fully bloom. Sure, the world wide web is great. But you, you make me salvate. Yes, I love technology, But not as much as you you see. But I still love technology. Always and forever. Napoleon rides in on a white honeymoon stallion, which then Kip and Lafonda ride off into the sunset in a, in a whole new world. Every time we gather in this place and sing our little songs to Jesus, I think we're just like Kip, beginning to sing to Lafonda. And it's really, really good that we do sing, because Jesus is about to ride in on a white honeymoon stallion and carry us all the way to a place where our own little arrogant kingdoms will be swallowed up by infinite, unceasing love. You know, the entire Revelation, which we're about to study in the fall, is a symphony of song. When we gather and sing, we're beginning to join that great symphony of song, just as Kip was about to lose his little kingdom and be consumed by LaFonda's love. He was a baffled king, composing Hallelujah. Well, I'm just framing this question, and that is, how do we come to sing a song? Or better yet, how do we come to write a song? Or even better, how do we become a song? The psalm I I read at the start of the message is particularly interesting because Scripture records how it was written. And it was written by someone you wouldn't expect to write such a a song. We we find it in Daniel chapter 4. This is verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now just take that in. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing the Bible, and not just the Bible. One of the most beautiful psalms in all in, in all the, uh, the the Bible, wishing peace upon all the earth. In case you've forgotten, Nebuchadnezzar is like the premier bad boy of the Old Testament. He's the king that destroyed Jerusalem and carried the the Jews away into captivity in Babylon. Psalm 137 recounts how his troops would take the little Jewish children and babies and dash them against the stones. He was a pagan who ruled the nations with terror, in dependence upon a court of sorcerers, enchanters, astrologers, and magicians. Basically, everything that God forbade. Nebuchadnezzar is writing the Bible. And not just the Bible, one of the most beautiful psalms in all the Bible. That's like discovering that the worst sinner that ever lived, according to Scripture, Saul of Tarsus, chief of sinners, wrote most of the New Testament. That's like discovering that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's like discovering that the world's greatest instrument of torture has become the world's greatest symbol of comfort and peace. That's like returning to the tree of knowledge in the middle of the garden and finding the tree of life growing in its place. It certainly appears that King Nebuchadnezzar not only sang this song, but he wrote the the psalm. And Daniel chapter 4 records how it happened. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And now the psalm, how great are his signs, the Most High God, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generations to generation. That's the beginning of the psalm, and now the next verse. In Daniel 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lie in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, After the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. Now, Daniel was a Hebrew slave that had been promoted, get this, to the chief of magicians, to be the chief of magicians, for his divine ability to interpret dreams. I told him the dream, writes Nebuchadnezzar. I told the dream, saying, O Balthazar. Belteshazzar, I think that's how you say it, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole world, or the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Seven periods of time, I think, is clearly a reference to the seven days of creation. So this is a story of creation and a story of a man's creation, Nebuchadnezzar's creation. The tree is a tree, and yet it's also a man. It's a man that turns into a beast or is reduced to a state in which he can no longer deny that he's always been a beast. Maybe you remember what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3. Remember this? I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see, not so that he may see, but that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And so that's why you experience trials and tribulations that you may see that you're a butt-beast, according to Solomon." Ecclesiastes 3, that's what it says. And that's why this tree is cut down. Surely Daniel knows Isaiah chapter 6, in which the Lord commands Isaiah to preach to Judah and Jerusalem until Israel is laid waste until, like a tree, it's pruned and burned down to a stump. And then the Lord says, the holy seed is its stump. You may remember that Jesus compared every person to a tree and said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And of course you remember that humanity was and is tempted at a tree, tempted to take the knowledge of good and evil in order to make ourselves into the very image of God. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is kinda like the epistemology of technology. To take the fruit of that tree is to assume that the good is something less than you. To be possessed by you and then used by you for your own purposes. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks like this. Remember this picture? God is good, right? God is the good. Jesus is the good in flesh. And at a tree, we took his life to make ourselves in the image of God. If you assume that the good is a thing less than you, you'll kill it. Cut it up and dissect it the way a forensic pathologist dissects a cadaver in order to know the cadaver. But if you assume that the good is something greater than you, like a person, you'll surrender to the good and allow yourself to be known by the good, the way La Fonda will know Kip on their honeymoon. I think the tree of knowledge is like the epistemology of technology where we take knowledge of the good thereby kill the good and watch everything die. And the tree of life is like the epistemology of worship where we receive knowledge of the good thereby worship the good and everything lives. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life are in the same place. The middle of the garden. The garden that is your own soul. Jesus is the good in flesh, Jesus is the life, and Jesus is the Logos. Logos means logic, reason, or word. Jesus is the Word of God through whom all things are created. Jesus is the rhythm and rhyme that holds all things together. Jesus is the logic in every song. See, I think in this fallen world, we each take logic to build our own kingdom. We each take reason and we use it to build our own souké in Greek, translated life, soul, mind, or psyche in English. I recently watched this video that illustrates how we constantly take words or ideas and turn them into, into brain. That is neurons and axons that form the neural pathways that we think upon and think with and then think are the things doing the thinking. We think the, these thoughts are, are us. The narrator points out how they look like like trees. They look like trees. Your psyche is like a tree that has grown on the assumption that reason belongs to you and therefore can be used by you to build your own kingdom. A kingdom in which you become trapped And there is no song, for there is no harmony, but only one long, loud, and endless note that is you, that is your psyche. A psyche all about you, in which the real you is trapped. Jesus taught that you must lose your psyche to find it. I think it's fascinating that this is the way a musician composes a song. Madeline Engel wrote this, an artist at work is in a condition of complete and total faith. Faith is worship, and worship is willing surrender to a logic greater than your own. Now, if you didn't comprehend all of that, don't worry about that. Just... Listen to the story, for it's the Word of God. It's the Logos of God. Daniel 4.16, Nebuchadnezzar finishes describing his his dream, his dream to Daniel. Uh, the Holy One, the Holy One says, let his mind be changed from a man's mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Daniel's terrified to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream. For he sees that Nebuchadnezzar is the great tree that will be cut down and bound with bands of iron, just as the Jews had been bound with bands of iron and carried off as slaves into, into Babylon. Slaves. The king will become a slave. The tree will be felled and burned down to its stump. Maybe the holy seed is its stump. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar is going to meet the root of all things, the Holy One. Verse 24, Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king, It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He was driven from among men. I think that's a pretty good description of mental illness or insanity. It's reason, logic and truth that that connects one person to another person and all persons to reality. But if reason, logic and truth only exists inside your own head, you, you are utterly alone. A madman is a man who creates his own reality with his reason, which becomes a prison the size of his own head. G.K. Chesterton wrote this, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. Perhaps that's the nearest we can get to expressing it. It is to say this, that his mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. Well, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. But this is my question. When was he most insane? When was he most isolated and trapped in the closed loop that was his own brain? When was he furthest from the reality or reality who is God and his creation? When was Nebuchadnezzar most insane? Uh, Was it when he lost his reason or when he had nothing but his own reason, when he ate grass like a beast utterly dependent upon grace, or when he stood on the roof of his house, his mansion, his palace and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You know, I think we tend to define sanity as what's normal, but what if all humanity is insane. What if every person at some point stands on their roof or sits in their mother's basement and says something like this, is not this my kingdom that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean what could be more insane than the assumption or the belief that you are your own creator and that your word determines Reality. True insanity is a thing called pride. And therefore, some that think themselves most sane are the most insane. And some that think they're going insane, I think, may in fact be going sane. I mean, if you think that you are the king of your own creation, And then you begin to get a little neurotic. I mean nervous that you just can't hold it all together. Or maybe obsessive compulsive uh, because you want more control. Or, Or maybe depressed because you feel inadequate and very alone. Well maybe you're not going insane. Maybe at last you're going sane. It would be most insane to believe that you are God and then not get neurotic, obsessive, compulsive, and depressed. So maybe the road to sanity is not convincing yourself that you're okay, but admitting to yourself that you're you're not okay. Maybe the road to sanity is not in regaining control of a ridiculous illusion in which all of humanity is trapped. Maybe it's not in regaining control, but in losing control and submitting to another's control. Maybe it's not in seizing control and making yourself king, but surrendering control to another king. And maybe that can't be your choice. It must be that king's choice. It it can't be your thinking. Why? Because then you'd still be trapped in your own thinking, right? Saving yourself from your thinking with your thinking. It can't be your thinking, but the king's thought that saves you. It can't be your logic, but another logic, which sets you free from the prison of your own logic, your own psyche. What I'm saying is that maybe you have to lose your psyche to find it. Maybe you have to go insane to be sane. Maybe you have to die in order to live. And I hope you know, I hope you realize that there will come a day in which you will not be able to sustain one thought. The oxygen will will stop flowing to those neurons and axons, and they will die. A day is coming in which you will not be able to sustain one thought. But on that day, you will discover that there is one thought that has always sustained you it's a word, it's the holy seed, it's the stump. It's Jesus the Christ, and Christ in you is faith in you, and faith in you is worship. Worship is wisdom, and wisdom is a tree of life, according to Solomon. Wisdom is a tree of life, your eternal life. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, verse 33. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. We don't know how God took reason from Nebuchadnezzar and we don't know how God gave reason back to Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps a demon was cast out of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean I've seen that kind of thing. I have multiple, multiple times. Perhaps God healed the spiritual or emotional wound in Nebuchadnezzar's, in his, in, in his past somewhere. I've definitely seen that sort of thing, where um, emotional healing leads to mental health. Perhaps God removed and then replaced some chemicals in Nebuchadnezzar's brain. You've all experienced that sort of thing. One too many beers is that sort of thing. Coffee in the morning to wake you up is that sort of thing. A chemical imbalance that you're born with is that sort of thing. And medication that restores some sort of chemical balance is also that sort of thing. We don't know how God gave reason to Nebuchadnezzar, nor did Nebuchadnezzar. But what did he know? What did he know after his reason was restored? He knew that reason was a gift. He knew that reason was not the product of his own choice, for he had none when he ate grass like an ox. (laughs) All sin is our own choice, and all sin is insanity, but not all insanity is sin. Listen closely. For Nebuchadnezzar to stand on his roof and think that he was God, that was his choice it was sin, it was pride, and it was insanity. But for Nebuchadnezzar to lose his reason and eat grass like a beast, that was not sin. That was the burning edge of grace. And grace is the logic of God. And grace is what makes each of us graceful, like a song. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, blessed, the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. And now he continues the psalm. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. that interesting it's like his reason was a song and the song was the reason and so uh, the song wasn't his creation as much as he was the songs creation as much as he was reasons creation and now he knew it not because he took the good not because he knew the good but because the good knew him He, he was reasons creation it was his reason, but not because he took reason, but because God gave reason to Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar began to sing along. At the same time my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. The uh, The tree was felled, and then another one grew in his place. Must have grown from the stump. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. <laughs> and now let me say, if you've been walking in pride, maybe this story humbled you a bit, right? The story, which is God's word, maybe it's caused you to feel a, a, a little humble. If so, be grateful. For he who humbles himself will be exalted. But now before we close, let me just sum up uh, what, what, I, what I think is some of what we learned, and I won't be able to say this perfectly, but number one, you are not the thoughts you think. You are the thought that God is thinking. Number two, we don't create reality with our choices, but we do create a false reality with our choices and a false self with our choices. That is our own choices, our proud choices, our sin. So we don't create reality with our choices, but God creates our choices with reality. That is our real choices, our good choices, faith, hope, and love. Love in us is divinity in us manifesting in us like music manifests in the body of a dancer, and that dance is reality, reality becoming incarnate in us. Number three, all must lose their psyche to find it. All must go insane to become sane. Number four, sanity is not seizing control, but surrendering control to the logic or logos of God. Number five, we don't save ourselves with reason. Reason saves us with himself. Number six, Jesus is the reason, and reason is not your own possession. Reason is more than knowledge to be taken like fruit from a tree. Reason is a life to be received like Kip received La Fonda. Number seven, to be reasonable is to worship, and to be proud is to be insane. And I think the church, big C, the church has been pretty much largely insane. For we're offended that God would save someone like Nebuchadnezzar. For we secretly think that we save ourselves, which just reveals that we're not yet saved and haven't yet heard the song. We're proud, for we think we're saved by our own reason, which means we're entirely unreasonable and thoroughly insane. Number eight, to write a beautiful song is not to seize control, but to surrender control to reason, the reason that upholds all things. When Friedrich Handel wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, His health and his fortunes were at the lowest possible point. His entire right side was paralyzed and he was thoroughly in debt. All his money was gone. He was threatened with imprisonment. He had locked himself away for 24 days straight. He appeared to have gone insane to everyone around him as he wrote the 260-page manuscript of what we now know of as the Messiah. One day, a worried servant interrupted him in his room, and Handel, spinned around, uh, looked at the, the servant with tears running down his cheeks, and he said this, I did think, I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself." He had just finished writing the Hallelujah Chorus. He was a baffled king, composing Hallelujah. Leonard Cohen wrote, "'I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the 4th, the 5th, the minor full, the major lift. Most music is based on a seven chord scale, like the seven days of creation. In a major chord, we hear harmony. But in a minor chord, one note is one half step off. A minor chord makes us long for a major chord. A minor chord makes us long for harmony, which is reason. Scripture reveals that man fell on the sixth day of creation and now we all long for the seventh day when all is in harmony. King David played the secret chord. King David sang hallelujah when he had lost his reason, and he wondered, why, why, why? King David sang hallelujah even though he felt forsaken by God. Why, oh, why have you forsaken me? King David sang hallelujah from the depths of despair because the logos of God, the word of God, was singing King David and singing in and through King David. He sang his sorrow until it turned into praise, until my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turned into a universe of grateful praise. Like Nebuchadnezzar, King David was a baffled king composing hallelujah. You see, I think we're all baffled kings composing hallelujah. And we're not just composing. We're decomposing, right? We're decomposing. And we're being composed. We're not just singing. We're being sung into existence by the Logos of God. Love actually is. The song says love is not a victory march. Well, love actually is a victory march. It's just that we're not the captives. Or we're not the captors. We are the captives. To think that you have comprehended love is insanity. God is love. But to be comprehended by love is to become the new creation. And to be, to be captivated by love is ecstasy. Number eight, to write a beautiful song, you must surrender to reason. Number nine, to become a beautiful person, you must be humbled and exalted by love. Number 10, God is love and Jesus is the logic of love. The the movie A Beautiful Mind is the true story of the brilliant mathematician John Nash. He was able to recognize patterns where no one else could. And so he was able to ascribe meaning to reality as no one else would. As a young man at Princeton, he lived alone. He refused to be taught by any other. Nobody doubted his brilliance, but soon everyone doubted his sanity. It's not that he was unreasonable. It's just that all the reason was his own. He was the king of his own reality, a world of of pride then deep loneliness, and then terror. John Nash goes insane, but is saved by amazing grace in the form of a woman who loves him, enters his insanity, and shows him what's real. You want to know what's real? This, 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 this is real. He was a king of his own reality, his own world. And then another reality snuck into that world. A reality that John Nash could not comprehend, but that comprehended John Nash, saved him, and made everything new. He went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1994, and this is his acceptance speech. I've always believed in numbers, in the equations and logics that lead to reason, but after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional back, and I have made the most important discovery of my career, the most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logical reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. You are all my reasons. Thank you. That's a baffled king composing Hallelujah. Number 10, God is love, and Jesus is the logic of love. And so, on the night he was betrayed, just before we took his life on a tree in a garden, the Logos of God, the logic of God, uh, the love that is God in flesh, reason in flesh, the good in flesh. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, take and and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Oh, Hallelujah! Let's sing it together. Hallelujah! Oh, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I thank you that logic is love divine, all loves excelling, and reason is not our enemy but in fact our Savior, for reason is your word who you wrapped in flesh and we placed in a manger and then crucified on a cross, but rose from the dead making all things new and making us reasonable. (laughs) Oh God, thank you that you are our sanity and you are the sanity behind all things. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Well, I hope that's encouraging to you. I mean it's incredibly encouraging to me that I'm Kip, <laughs> I'm like old Saul, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Nebuchadnezzar, I'm a baffled king composing hallelujah because I'm being composed. <laughs> I'm grateful for that and it also makes me grateful for you because you all are baffled kings composing hallelujah and together we are baffled kings being composed into a hallelujah as God knits us together with his logic, his reason which is love divine, all loves excelling. So we're going to continue to talk about this in the next uh, few weeks and uh, all of us have our issues and struggles and yet God uses them all to bring us together. After the service right now we're going to have a baptism service and baptism symbolizes this that you are losing your psyche not because you're becoming unreasonable, it's because you're submitting to reason. You're submitting to love divine, all love's excelling. Uh, And the idea that we die with Him and we rise with Him who is the Logos of God. So after the service, some of us are going down to the plat um, to baptize. Baptism isn't the things that saves you, it symbolizes the fact that you're saved by the grace and love of God, and so if you'd like to be baptized, you want to join us, you're welcome. Frances um, already has her towel, and she's going to explain a little bit about how we're going to do this.